0: I've spent so much time this year writing and and doing these other things. And they're very, maybe with other people, but nothing's come out yet. Like I haven't produced a new show or done a new play or worked on an You know, there's nothing. It's quiet time. It's maker time. And I feel like there's something to be said for spending months and years working on something and making it. And I feel like society now expects people to like churn out incredible creative content whether it's you know season 2 of Stranger Things immediately or Taylor Swift's next album or whatever it is like we put this pressure on everybody to like create as if we're some sort of like
1: factory While story invites us to ask powerful questions your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask Where is your curiosity pointing What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work, and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your
0: canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers.
1: During some recent time in LA, I got to play catch up with my friend, Laura Yankin.
0: When I was at a point in my life where my creative identity was completely linked to the company I worked at, It was very easy for me to answer that question, and it was an impressive-sounding answer. When I left and I kind of went through a whole journey of like reimagining what I wanted to do and how I wanted to use my skill sets and my creativity and my penchant for story and all these things, I had to kind of redefine the answer to that question, and it took me a while. So my fallback was always, I'm a producer, because I am a producer. I produce lots of different types of things. And then it started to become, well, I'm a creative producer because that at least like opens the door for, oh, she does something creative. She's a producer creatively. She, she makes something, right? She
1: call show, the, show up and call the cues.
0: And then uh, I got, over the last year, I've been more comfortable also tagging on like my own activism. I'm fine when people call me an activist. That's cool with me. Uh, I'm owning that more and more. And now that I'm writing so much more, I'm getting paid to write. I'm okay now saying, oh, I'm also a writer, I guess. I don't know, that one I'm still working on. But on an airplane, like I, on the way back from France a few days ago, someone asked me like, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a creative producer. And that usually opens the door for like, oh, what does that mean? Or what is that? And I say, well, I produce entertainment and I'm a creative consultant and I do strategy and I also work in the diversity and inclusion space. So it does kind of open this amazing door into all the different types of things that I'm working on and the people I'm working with. Um, And you're right, with creative people, that's kind of how it goes.
1: And she is all of these things. Laura Youngkin is a theatrical producer, creative consultant, and proud millennial, but she's also so much more. I love how honest Laura is with this answer because it's true, as creatives and artists, we tend to not like being put into a box, right? And this isn't to say that having an expertise in one area is the wrong way to go about your art. I think that this answer simply speaks to the truth of our inner struggle with feeling sort of caged in. As you may have concluded from her answer, Laura has worked with some pretty high profile companies. So I wanted to dive deeper into what she meant when she said that it was easier for her to define what she did while she was working for a big corporation. You said it's easier when you work at a company. Is that because companies tend to love job titles on business cards?
0: Yeah, they do. They put a lot of stock into it. It was easier because during those years, um, when you're, when you're working at like a giant corporation and it's a creative company but still, at the end of the day, like a giant corporation, you're part of this, I don't want to say cult, but you're part of this like… <laughs> Some like, of them certainly feel well, like it. Well, it does feel like that to an extent because you are you are ingratiated like into this mindset of like your identity inside the company and even I guess outside the company is the title that you are like and the project that you work on or the portfolio you're a part of. And so… Um, and when you work for a very beloved, well-renowned organization, it's also cool to say, like, oh, that's where I work or that's what I do. And people are always really impressed by it. So for me, it was just easy. It statused me, like, where I was. And it also um, it also kind of, like, shows a status you know, it's almost like a mask you wear, Mm -hmm. right? Of like, oh, well, I'm clearly good enough or smart enough or talented enough. These, you know, this company thinks I am, which is why I work there. So that says something about me. And when you let go of that and have to kind of reimagine professionally, but also personally the answer to that question, like, oh, what do you do? I was just reading an article five minutes before you got here about how the French never asked that question. And I noticed that last week I went to France alone for a week, um, just to have an adventure. And I noticed that no one ever asked me, oh, what do you do? Um, and I think, it's, and I was just reading that it's because the French don't value, you know, they don't, They don't value like working for a living in the same way that Americans do. They don't derive their like professional, personal identity, their self-worth from it the way we do. Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, And it was really challenging for me to step back and have to like redefine that answer.
1: Are you familiar with Enneagram? Oh, yeah. What's your number?
0: Oh, you asked me this like three (laughs) months ago and I sent it to you.
1: I remember that now. I think it was, was it a three?
0: No, because you guessed what it was going to be, and then, <laughs> and then you were wrong.
1: Well, I only ask about Enneagram because what you just said um, is like the opposite of where I've been over the last couple of years mm-hmm. because I was like, gosh, I want what the French value because I'm a three, hardcore three, and threes have a hard time
0: oh, you know what? feeling
1: loved by for who they are. Instead, I, they feel loved for what they do, which is kind of what you were just saying, that the yes. French value.
0: Yes. Okay. Hold on.
1: Because America tends to be a nation that sort of worships threes, right? The three is like, what a America celebrates.
0: You know what? You were right. Was I? Well, I think in our first meeting, you you thought I was an an eight? A potential eight, yeah. Yeah. So I am a three. I'm a yeah. three with a type two wing. Okay. What does that mean?
1: <laughs> um, it means that you probably have a lot less emotional turmoil than a three with a four wing. Uh, no i have enneagram a tremendous expert. amount of emotional turmoil <laughs> well, that's from your threeness you would have even more of that i think if you were a four probably um uh, i'm not an enneagram expert that's why okay. i don't want to speak into that too much but yeah i'm a three so oh, okay we'll so you cut from the same cloth. oh get it and okay, we both cool. struggle with that do people like me and love me for who i am or, or for because what I, do? I yeah yeah or yeah. Bec-
0: or what i can do for them yeah
1: Let me take a break here and say that I couldn't help but bring up the Enneagram at this moment. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's a personality test. I guess some people don't like calling it that, but personality theory that helps to show you how you view the world, sort of a lens, uh, how you gather your perceived worth. If you've never heard of it, I highly encourage you to go check out our podcast episode from season one with Ian Morgan Cron that is totally dedicated to that subject because the Enneagram gets brought up a lot by our guests during our conversations. So not only will it be helpful for you as you listen to these stories, but I truly think it will help you on your creative journey. Okay, now back to Laura's story. Well, so you named a lot of things. So now you're creative producer, writer, Mm -hmm. activist doing a lot of work in diversity inclusion, mm-hmm. What um, how, when, where along that journey of discovering you were all those things, do you feel like you owned the word storyteller? Was it an aha moment? Did you have an epiphany one day? It's just like, it's really about stories. Or have you just kind of always think that's kind of the foundation that all of those other types of work share in common?
0: So that is actually the easiest title for me because uh, I think I told this story at at story this year, (laughs) (laughs) a little anecdote. (laughs) I, I told the people who attended my breakout, um, I talked a lot about like creative competition and creative, like competition conditioning around creativity. Mm -hmm. And, in the second grade is when I was like, oh, I'm a storyteller because in Texas growing up, everything is a competition. I mean, everything like violin, choir, theater. The
1: size of your truck. Be-
0: yeah. Be- <laughs> and it's not just sports or like any of that kind of like traditional kind of Texas stuff that we, uh-huh. you know, that you associate with Texas. Like they, academic, speech and debate, everything is competitive. And so in the second grade, I was in the UAL storytelling competition, and UAL is like the uni- – oh, God, what is it? University Interscholastic League or something. It's like the governing body of I have no idea. Texas sports okay. and academic competitions for like Texas public schools. I have uh-huh. no idea if that's still the case. Um, but I participated every year in kind of like this speech and debate, forensics, you know, dramatic interpretation, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> um. It makes me laugh Uh, competitions. And in second grade, I was I did the storytelling one. And basically, the whole thing is you, you go into a room with like eight other second graders or third or fourth graders and a teacher or an adult reads a story. And then you have a few minutes to think about it. And then they read the story again. And then one by one, you're called into another room. And before a panel of judges, you retell the story that you just were read two times. Wow. And you're judged on your ability to like improv and basically retell that story on the fly.
1: Are they judging you based on the accuracy? Like Is they're it about duplicating you based the exact on, story? Yeah, they're
0: judging you based on accuracy. They don't want you to... to they don't want the you to story. memorize the words of the book. They want you to interpret what you heard and almost add kind of a dramatic or poetic flair to it. So it's really about on the fly being able to listen to a story and then speak it back in your own way, in your own prose. So I won second place and I was in a, in a, out of all the kids' that day and I went from round to round. So I had to do it like multiple times that day and I made it through every round and I won second place and I was like the youngest kid on stage with a ribbon and everybody made such a big deal about it. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm really good at telling stories. I thought you were going to
1: tell me it was like an embarrassment to the family because you didn't get first place. No, and like- although the following
0: <laughs> year, I think I competed in, there were different different ones. You could do poetry or oral reading or all these different, there's like a prose one. And I. the following year I got like the green honorable mention ribbon. And it always bugs me when people say things about millennials about how we always, we like got a trophy for everything, participation. When I got that green ribbon, I remember showing it to my mom and being like, mom, I, I still placed, like I did a good job. And she was like, no, that is eighth place. So you come home with red, white or blue, and we can talk about you doing a good job. But clearly this means there's room for improvement. So like, don't get too proud (laughs) about your green honorable mention ribbon. And I was like, whoa, okay, I guess I'm going to have to work harder next year.
1: Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: But for no, for one year, I did bring great pride upon my family.
1: You were a championship storyteller.
0: Yeah. So storytelling for me always came really naturally. And I think because my siblings are so much older than me and I kind of grew up uh, by myself, the story world and imaginative play was a huge, huge part of my upbringing. And I think because I did so much theater and choir and these storytelling competitions, and I was so engaged in the arts in that way as a young child, that aspect was easy. It's always been natural for me to say like, oh, yeah, I'm I love telling stories or I'm a I think I'm a pretty good natural storyteller or I understand how story works. Um but that's in creating and telling stories. Um when I got into the workforce, I had a boss one year tell me I needed to be better at story. And I was like, What? What are you talking about? I want story- a ribbon in second grade. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> hello. I didn't understand what she meant because I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm the creative producer on this project and I've helped literally write these stories and I'm part of the dramaturgical team and the creative team that's bringing these stories to life through design and theater and attractions and all these things. I don't understand what she means. And what she was really talking about is getting better at story like a narrative at work, like the narrative around yourself. Mm -hmm. And what that really means is like building uh, a brand and a story around yourself that may not actually be authentic, but is like a thing you need in order to survive in the workplace.
1: So not just the stories you tell, but the story that you tell yourself.
0: Yeah, no, more about like what stories are other people saying about you? What are the stories other people tell about you and how can you have more control over it? And that felt really gross to Mm me because I was like, well, I thought what other people think about me is none of my business. So why does it matter? Um, And if I'm just being true to myself and I'm conscious about the story I tell and the story I live – then i don't really need to worry about that but in in those big kind of your bureaucratic workplaces you kind of do and that's i saw how other people were kind of masterminds of like managing the story about themselves even if the story wasn't true yeah and so i saw how story can be used as like a completely different sure tool or mechanism and that's just like not a place i want to go
1: so you've worked for giant companies mm-hmm. and now you're doing a lot of stuff on your own mm-hmm. as a freelancer. How do you balance that tension of knowing that you do have to embrace the idea of a personal brand? Because if you don't if you don't decide what your personal brand is, someone else is totally. gonna tell the story themselves. So you have like what she was saying is right in a way. It is.
0: I mean, I get it. But then
1: how do you handle the grossness that you feel that comes along yeah, with that? Where's it's the a
0: daily thing for me because um, I am not social media is not, as, as a marketing tool, is not an intuitive thing for me. And when I started the Brave Millennial and it really started to pick up and gain traction, I had a lot of advisors around me saying, oh, you need to grow your social media presence. Let's grow Instagram. Let's grow your Snap. Let's pick, you know, and I was like, listen, I cannot be on five social media platforms. Pick two For me, and then like link up some accounts to share. I I cannot manage; it's just not. Yeah, I'm not really on Twitter, and I, um, that's a conscious choice to not participate on Twitter regularly, like other people do. And so, it was really hard for me in the beginning because what I didn't want to do as I was building this platform was. I didn't want to do the obvious thing. I didn't want to make it like all the other millennial platforms or or any other platforms for women that are focused on women in, at work or women in leadership. I didn't want it to feel corporate, but I also didn't want it to feel too like cool, hipster, trendy. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. I wanted it to be like a place where millennial women, no matter where you live or what you look like or where you work or – could come and feel like a sense of community instead of feeling like they had to be a cool Instagram model. Like when someone told me I needed to post more photos of myself on my Instagram, I was like, but, <laughs> but why? Like they're not, they're like, well, those photos get tons of likes. I'm like, yeah, I guess. But like the point of me doing this project is not to shine a light on myself. The point of me doing this project is to make sure my flashlight's big enough and bright enough to shine it on other people. That's the point. And that's almost counterintuitive yeah. for the way you're supposed to use as a as a quote unquote influencer, which is a a title I reject. That is the <laughs> that's like what you're supposed to do. And I some people are really good at it. And I follow them and I'm and I, I'm engaged by some of their content. And that's all great and fine. That's just not me. So I have to stay engaged enough and post regularly enough so that. My audience, you know, my followers have something to look at. And, it, and it's also an extension of like what I'm thinking or going through or feeling or what I want to put out into the world. But I don't spend a ton of time on it. I decided many years ago that I only wanted to use my social media platforms to put out things that I felt were positive or important and not use it as a platform for venting or – um tearing idea other ideas other people's ideas down or even politics i don't agree with that's been a lot harder in the last year as i've wanted to like share you know uh, my views on politics or anything that's happening in our country i still want to use my platform for like highlighting even just my personal facebook which is private i still want to use it to put out you know meaningful totally content or stories in a positive way and highlight positive things um it's been interesting trying to keep with that and i I also recognize that that itself is a choice that is also a choice theatrically Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. it's like that's something i decided that's how i'm going to use my gift for story or my storytelling platform but But um, at least it's
1: more true to yourself
0: It is. I mean, it's not like there aren't days where I wish I was on Twitter and I could just fire off 140 characters about something that I hate, right? Or something (laughs) that was ridiculous or, you know, some stupid bill that the Senate's trying to pass or whatever. Of course, I have those thoughts and feelings. um, But I always have to stop and think like, is this necessary? Do people really need to hear this from me? Um, And sometimes... I, I don't think twice. Like, I'll see something I want to share and I'll just sh- share it immediately. And other times I'll really think about, like, what do I want to say about this? Because I know that I probably should say something about this thing, mm-hmm. especially with all, you know, in the last, like, six weeks or so with all this stuff coming out, with starting with Weinstein and then unfolding. Here in Hollywood, I am engaged in a few projects right now where we're really looking at, like, how do we change the culture from within and so I felt like I'm going to have to get more comfortable talking about this regularly via social media. Yeah. But to me it's it still never feels intuitive. Yeah. Maybe it's a three thing.
1: Maybe. I loved this conversation about the tension of social media. It's so pertinent to the way that our culture has conversations now. And I love the way that Lara has been so aware about how she uses the platforms that she is on. I think we can all learn a lesson or two from her, but beyond her presence on social media, she's always looking for ways to build bridges in our culture. A few years ago, she started the Brave Millennial, an organization dedicated to supporting and promoting millennial women in the American workplace. This conversation is so important, so I was excited to dive in.
0: So I started Brave Millennial. It actually was, the idea of it was kind of birthed in 2015 when I was still at my past company, and some of the leadership there noticed a trend of millennials leaving, and, and, um, and when I say millennials, I mean like 23 to 35. So it's particularly concerning when you're like 30 to 35 employees or like, Taking off because they're usually people you've spent time and money investing in, and you want them to stick around. Become... I mean,
1: and we're talking about the kind of companies that people dream of working. Oh, for.
0: right, yeah. right. So you know where we make the magic. It's like people <laughs> go and work there for forty years. You want the pen, yeah. you want the ring, right? And so it's not—it's uh, a place that you just—it's—it's it's not common to quit. And so when people leave, some of the leaders were like, "Oh, this." this is like a new phenomenon. And also, (laughs) whoa, what do we do about this? We worked so hard to get this class of like young, talented people here. Some of them have been here five, seven, 10 years. We're expecting them to move into leadership and they're all going to our competitors or other companies or striking out on their own, which a lot of them did. And they came to me and said, can you help us figure out why this is happening? And the answer is, was not like a pretty thing, right? I mean, the answer is not a – for any company, finding out why you're having a lot of people leave or a lot of people become disengaged in what they're doing, um, when the answer stems back to like, well, this is a toxic workplace or, well, there's tons of gender bias and discrimination happening and I'm not into it or there's age bias or racial bias, it kind of like nobody wants to talk about that. Right? Was Nobody. it
1: shocking where they're like what? Really? Like they were completely unaware of yeah. it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was some shock and there was also some like we are not to to, to speak about this again. Yeah. So that which um, can't be named. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, all right, you've you've found this out, but you know, we don't we said we wanted to know, but we don't really want to know, you know. I wasn't surprised by any of it because I was you know, really engaged with my peers and I too had experienced um, not just at, at that company, but almost in every workplace that I've been in or every project experienced some level of gender discri- gendered type discrimination or age bias, those types of things. I mean, just the way that that bullying and toxic workplaces like kind of manifest themselves in teams. I've seen that everywhere. So it didn't surprise me at all, but it is kind of surprising when you gather a lot of information from, you know, 35 people and you ask 35 people to tell you their story. I I had like a hundred paragraphs of people telling me their story. None of it shocked me, but it was very enlightening. And, um, I hope it's a, So that kind of showed me that like there was something to it. There was something to asking the questions and making space for conversations that nobody wanted to have. And I could see amongst my peers that they wanted to talk about this and figure out how to be a part of the solution for it. They wanted to know how do I deal with – Gender bias at work, like, what do I do when I'm the youngest person and probably the only woman in a meeting? Like, how do I navigate this? There's no space to have that conversation unless it's like in the corner in someone's office, privately, in a hallway, at lunch, at a bar, or whatever. But we weren't talking about it as a group. And so, um, once I left, I was like, you know, I'm pretty good at like creating space. And I think I could set up the right boundaries and and have a conversation about this in the right context. And I wonder if it would be meaningful for people. And I wonder what I would learn. Hmm. And so I did like a pilot, a friend of mine and – Helped me. And we did this kind of like pilot Brave Millennial night where we did some really interesting things with the structure and we filmed the whole thing. And, you know, I learned a lot that night about what works and what doesn't work when you're asking, you know, 30 women in a room to really like tell you their story and tell you their struggles and talk about hard issues. And we are, I'm not talking about just stuff at work. We, we covered the gamut. We talked about social media. We talked about the impact our mothers and our upbringing had on us and how we view ourselves as women. We've talked about marriage and relationships. I mean, we kind of covered the gamut. But mm-hmm. um, I had never been in a room like that with that many women discussing those, those things as an adult. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I was younger around a campfire or something. You know, <laughs> girls talk. But it was really different. And so I found out like, okay, there's something to this. And so being the kind of, um, I don't know, producer that I am, I was like, well, I'm going to go out and I want to talk to more people and I want to hear more stories and I want to go collect stories and I want to look for patterns. And I, you know, look, I'm not a data scientist. I really didn't know how to capture the data effectively for this, but I knew I had to. So I created like a 75-question survey. So if you came to a Brave Millennial event – 95% 95% of them took the survey before they walked in the door, and I used their answers in every city to kind of understand the trends or what's going on with maybe that group of women that's specific to their to their geography. Mm-hmm. And then I crafted a conversation about three hours around that. And you can imagine after doing that 11 times and talking with more than 320-something women, I learned a lot. I heard a lot of stories.
1: So tell us what you learned.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I know you can't cover it all. I can't cover it all. You know what? One of the things. What's the
1: overarching theme?
0: Millennial women are the most educated group of women in history, literally. And when you sit down and talk with them, you hear that and you see that. And I think that it's a vast resource in our country that's being widely underutilized. And so until we can figure out how to have gender parity in politics, on boards of corporations, CEOs, I mean, literally until there's 50-50 representation across every industry, we won't be tapping in to one of our nation's greatest resources. And I saw that and heard that and felt that in every single city that I went to. What impressed me about them so much is that in every city that I went to, you know, I always came with a plan, right? It's like, oh, I have this plan. I know that we probably are not gonna stick to the plan, but I'm gonna have the plan. And in the first hour, I, I used to break the conversation up um, into two to two halves and we take a break in the middle just to like get some wine and breathe and kind of regroup for the next hour the first hour kind of always went wherever I wanted it to go. I kind of laid out the ground rules. I talked about why I'm doing this project, what I'm trying to learn, what I'm hoping to do with this information once I've gathered it. And then we usually dove in by talking about work, because work as Americans is so much of our identity. And I would have these incredible conversations with women around work and workplace politics and gender and age and race and all these things. And also their own ambition and like what they want to – how they want to use – that is a very millennial thing, right? To have – to want your work to really mean something, to have an impact. So we would talk about what that means to each person individually. And then in the second half, no matter where I was and what was going on in the news that week, which did impact the conversation everywhere I went – The conversation always shifted organically, like the attitude shifted from these are the challenges I experience and I want to share them and maybe we can together collectively not feel less alone but also come up with a solution. The first half was always about sharing our own struggles and challenges. The second half, the, the attitude always shifted to, all right, these are the big issues facing our nation or facing... Uh, us as women or facing our families or facing whoever, these are the big problems. What am I going to do to be part of the solution? What am I going to bring to the table? And my takeaway that I tried to pass on to everybody at the end of the night was always, look, you don't have to change the world by yourself. None of us accomplishes anything alone. But if you do anything tonight, I want you to leave with just a little bit of encouragement that you can make change just by acting bravely inside of your own circle of influence. And that's all I'm asking you to do. So 2017, the shift for me has been, you know, 2016 was like a marathon. I was on an airplane, like, constantly. I drove all all across Texas. Like, I went to all these cities. And it was all more outward facing and 2017 for me has been more inward facing and a little bit more like, all right, I have all this information, now what am I going to do with it and how am I going to use it? So one of the ways that I'm using it is um, I'm working on a project with a consulting company that I've worked with for several years now and they do a lot of strategy like workplace Work so they go into companies that need help restructuring, or they have some some sort of culture issue, and that's always like really tricky. That's like really tricky consulting, by the way. That's hard stuff to figure out. Yeah, especially in companies that aren't creative because there's kind of not a penchant for that type of discussion. Oh man, it's hard. Yeah. So, um, so we are working on building a program right now that is really hoping to address the, enter- the entertainment industry first, but I think it's adaptable to other industries as well, that really focuses on um, sponsorship inside of their own organizations and how can you identify like all the talent you have across the diversity inclusion spectrum. So basically everybody who's not a white male, like how can we – how can we highlight and identify that talent and then really provide those people with not just mentoring but active sponsorship which is really advocacy it's giving them opportunities it's giving them frankly opportunities to like rise above their station giving people opportunities to fail it's all the things that you know i see i love my husband but he's a white guy and he gets all <laughs> access to all kinds of opportunities that you know i at the same company could never have dreamed of having and it's not even the money or the job or the title it's about the privilege to be given responsibility based on your potential and not on your past performance and so we are focused on like how can we help companies build internal sponsorship programs so that they are kind of changing the way their leadership works so the, what their leadership looks like.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, studies show actual real data by actual data scientists and real companies that do this work globally shows that, I mean, the McKinsey report that just came out said that if we were to achieve parity in leadership across our industries or we were going to close the gap, I, I kind of want to like pull up the data right here, but if we were to close the gender gap essentially in our economy, we would add like, 12 trillion dollars to the global GDP by like 2025 or something. I mean, it's crazy what it could do for for us globally, but even just in the US. I mean, companies that have more diversity on their boards and in their leadership, they make more money. And that is like the, I mean, if there's no other incentive, if you don't care about anything else, like, at least, hey, you could make more money. I mean, I feel totally. like kind of a hoaxer sometimes <laughs> selling that. But sometimes that's the conversation we're having with people who just are like, why should I care?
1: Exactly. Why
0: should I care about yeah. how many women we have in leadership or how many people of color um, or how many members of the LGBTQ community are part of our leadership? Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, you'll make more money. Yeah. Um, but you how- should, right. But you should care. First yeah. of all, but yeah, um, and so we're working on that right now and getting that rolling and talking with a lot of like big companies about how they could implement that inside of their own structures and organizations. That excites me. Uh, I'm going to be doing some more writing that's going to be coming out late this year, early next year that I'm excited about. Um, just writing for a few different outlets, and I'm excited to kind of have a bigger platform to share my thoughts on some of these issues. Because for me, half of my work is centered in the entertainment industry, and then the other half of my work is more focused on diversity and inclusion, and it's interesting It would interesting make sense now. then that you do that. Right. And well,
1: the entertainment industry. Right. Yeah.
0: So now it's it's fun because they're finally intersecting mm-hmm. in like a meaningful way. So next year I am working on a few uh, creative projects that will hopefully get made. And that's, you know, that's storytelling, that's writing scripts and working with other people on telling stories and creating content and entertainment that are, that's scripted for people to digest. But it's really a composite of the stories that I heard last year and the women I met yeah. And the things I learned and the experiences I heard about and also my own. Um, so I'm excited for that. And yeah, it's a, it's a good time right now. Like you're catching me at a good time. I, I've spent so much time this year um, writing and like working and writing and strategizing and taking meetings and trying to get projects going and also learning like when it's time to walk away from something that, may, that I may really like but may not be – it may not be the right time, mm-hmm. um,
1: or you're saying no to something else by default yep. of saying yes to yep. something. Yes, so it might be a it might be a good thing, but there's yes. another thing that you're being forced to say no to.
0: Yeah, and
1: sometimes we don't even know what that thing is, right? Yes, so you say yes to an opportunity because it seems okay or good, but through that commitment and saying yes, mm. you just unknowingly said no to something right. that's going to come your way two weeks from now. Right, and that's really
0: hard. It is hard, but I wonder. I kind of I would love to sit down and talk with I don't know people older and wiser than myself about like the creative process of making and and especially writing stories. I've spent so much time this year writing and and, and doing these other things and they're very maybe with other people, but but nothing's come out yet. Like I haven't produced a new show or done a new play or worked on an, you know, there's nothing, it's quiet time, it's maker time. And I yeah. feel like there's something to be said for spending months and years working on something and making it. Sure. And I feel like society now expects people to like churn out incredible creative content, whether it's, you know, season two of Stranger Things immediately, Or Taylor Swift's next album, or whatever it is, like we put this pressure on everybody to like create as if we're some sort of like factory.
1: Or while you're off doing that other album, make sure you produce all this content in the meantime to keep your audience engaged. Right. So that when you're major content, it's like, why can't you just take a break? Like, can't you you just go away for a little while? Right. So
0: I feel like this year, not that i have a huge <laughs> following or platform I'm not a famous person but i feel like this year for me has been a little bit of like i'm stepping back i'm going to go around and talk about i'm going okay to tell the Millennial story to the wilderness for a little while yeah that's what i did last week yeah. i mean i went to france by myself i don't speak the language i've never been to europe alone i just felt like i needed to get
1: yeah, that's cool some
0: perspective and space and, yeah. and you know just get in a different mindset it was absolutely amazing. That's
1: awesome. You said something just a moment ago. That's a great segue to how I want to finish, which is you said, I want to speak to like the people that are older than me to help understand how to. And so what that says is, is you're looking for counsel from the generation that was ahead of us, but yet you're doing this, Mm -hmm. you're creating this movement called the brave millennial about the things that you want to change about the culture they created as well. Totally. So maybe finish by Maybe it's two questions. One, based on what you've learned through this season of doing, of trying to start this movement mm-hmm. and the change that you're trying to create, what advice would you give to the generation that's ahead of you? Mm. Um, what do you want them to know about you as a millennial um, and a female millennial? Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe follow up, finish with, how can they best help you?
0: Mm. Great questions. Good. Good loaded so questions bo- there, Harris. <laughs> so both ways. What do you so want to say to them? So what do I want to say to them? So I think.
1: What do you need from them? And what have you learned that you want to offer them? Maybe Ooh. that's the best way to look at it.
0: Ooh. Well, one thing that I that I would like, I don't say I need, but I think it would be helpful for the older generations. And this includes like my parents' generation, obviously baby boomers.
1: So for those who are listening, they're technically not old. Like don't let like right, them they're not scary. Old, You're just slightly like older than we are. Older.
0: Um, And I'm technically an aging millennial, by the way. (laughs) So are you. (laughs) Um, I I would like for them to not see us as children Hmm. because we are adults now. And the aging, the older millennial group is, I mean, millennials are now the largest group of people in the workforce. And we are moving into leadership in a lot of different industries and capacities. We also bring a lot to the table. And everywhere I went last year, when I've talked to Gen Xers, boomers, as well as millennials, and I ask, what are the stereotypes that you think or know or feel about millennials? And these two words get repeated more than any other two words. And that's lazy and entitled. Now, There are lazy and entitled people of every generation. (laughs) We all know that. (laughs) But I don't think that lazy and entitled is really a fair assessment of millennials as a whole. Look, technology has changed our world so rapidly. I mean, think about it. You got your first iPhone 10 years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. Think about all that's happened since then. So Technology's changed our world so rapidly, and our generation has been the one that's kind of like come from high school through college now into the workforce during this rapid change, as well as the generation really, really impacted by the late 2000s economic downturn and the recession. And our parents were impacted by it as well, but we really were, I mean, look at the student I mean, one of the things I learned on my tour last year was that financially millennials fall into two camps. Those who have a positive outlook on their prosperity, those are, the, those are the millennials without student loans. And the ones who have student loans have like a completely different outlook on their own economic prosperity and what they think they can do in life, include including having kids and a, and a home and all these things. So I would like for people older to maybe challenge their own their own assumptions or stereotypes about what, you know, my generation is into or what we're about or that we're useless or lazy or any of these things. Um, you, you really can't like categorize a whole millions and millions and millions of people in that way. I think based on my own experiences in the workforce and throughout school and, you know, even now and, and on my tour, I met people who are incredibly engaged and I'll go back to the saying again this is the largest largest group of the workforce but it's the most the most educated group of women in history and that is a huge resource i mean it's massive and we haven't tapped it yet and i just i get like really like fired up thinking about what would happen if we did and I, I mean, I'm also saying millennial men are awesome. Like, I, think, <laughs> I mean, millennial, millennials in general are interested in big ideas and making impact. I have friends with a lot of millennial men who are startup founders who are doing really impressive, incredible work. And a lot of it stems back to like, what's the positive change I want to make in the world or in society or in this industry or what problem am I trying to solve? And I think there's something to that. And so I would love for us to have like break down assumptions on both sides about what the other generation is about. And I don't know, kind of see each other more as people and not as a number. Yeah. Because some of my best and most favorite colleagues in my life have been people who were over 65. And we had we made incredible um we had an incredible collaboration together but it's because we both came to the table with an immense amount of respect for the other person so and then what do i want to say to them
1: yeah maybe well i because I, I, I think like i ep- kind of covered it yeah you did you did so maybe uh, the best way to finish this i think because this is a lot of like constructive i want to say it's mostly constructive criticism but there's definitely a you hear him a lot a lot of millennials going like gosh, you could help us by doing this. You could serve us by doing this. Like the world would look different if you gave us more opportunities Mm. to do this. Um, And and what I don't want is for the millennial focus on change to be so loud that the generation that's ahead of us doesn't feel like there's a sense of gratitude for what they've done well. And so maybe we finish this podcast and this show by saying thank you for what?
0: Oh, cool. So what do we say thank you for? Oh, I'm so thankful for... For the mentorship and advocacy and championing, that's a hard word, that people of other generations, whether they're seven years or, you know, 40 years older than me, have shown me throughout my life, frankly, in my career. I mean, when I think back, I'm sure. Maybe a lot of people feel this way. You know, your teachers and coaches when you're young, or for me, my theater directors, are like really, really important people in my story. And those adults kind of helped me kind of shape the idea or shape my own dream about what I might do or who I might be. And then again, as an adult, going into the workforce, those mentors, um, or even just – Fantastic colleagues that were, um, you know, 10, 20 years ahead of me showed me a lot of grace and let me make mistakes and helped me rebound from those mistakes and learn really valuable lessons. And they're great friends, (laughs) but I'm grateful for – yeah, I'm grateful for, like, the time that they've invested in me. And now I do feel a responsibility – to reinvest that into the people coming up behind me. Let's close with this. Saturday. Because <laughs> I, I think went- what
1: you're grateful for is, is a way of saying, hey, do more of this. This is what's happening. Yeah, working.
0: just investment. Yeah. Investment. So, and that's legacy. It really is. Saturday, I went to Vulture Fest, uh, LA at the Roosevelt. And it was it's basically, you know, a full day of cool panels and talks, people in entertainment. And I went to One of the later ones featuring Jill Soloway and Lena Waithe. And Lena won the Emmy this year for writing the Thanksgiving episode of Master of None, which if you haven't watched, you should definitely watch. It's fantastic. And she talked about her legacy and how legacy for her now, it's like planting seeds that she'll never see, right? It's it's doing as much as she can for the people coming up behind her and creating opportunity and making more space for people like herself, or maybe not like herself, but mm-hmm. you know, for the people that she can influence. And I thought that was such a beautiful sentiment. And in a lot of organizations, I hear that word all the time, legacy, legacy planning. We've got a plan for the next generation of leadership. And I think investment in that legacy and treating us like, yeah, we are going to, we are, we are happy to pass the baton and we wanna pass down our wisdom, We know that what you're facing is different than what we dealt with, but here's what we know and we want you to succeed. I think that is a really, really powerful message and I'd love to see more of it.
1: That's awesome. Legacy. Man, what a beautiful thing to strive for. Something that's going to happen and come to life long after we're gone. I love this conversation about raising up the next generation of storytellers, male, female, millennial, or generation Z. We have to look past the stereotypes in order to raise them up with the end goal of shifting our culture for the better. Because good storytelling has the power to do that. Don't you want to be a part of it? I hope you do. And I'm so thankful that you joined us this week for this episode. I hope that you caught our story craft episode on Monday where we give you a creative tip in five minutes or less. We do that on a weekly basis. If you missed this week, just go back and take a listen. I guarantee that we will give you something tangible to integrate into your work. As always, subscribing and rating this show is so helpful as we continue to serve the story community. Everything we do here at Story is created with you and your work and mine, including our membership only platform, StoryCraft, where we post weekly premium video content and host a monthly interactive video live stream with creative professionals like the guests you hear from here on this podcast. Visit StoryCraft.co for more information. That's StoryCraft.co. Hope to see you there. I am Harris the 3rd and until next time thank you so much for listening.